Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. We're back for another week, as usual, brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do hop over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. As usual, we have a jam-packed episode for you. In fact, one of our favored guests is stopping by uh, to talk all things mining and investment. But before I unveil to whom I refer, uh, a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, The Yukon Mining Alliance, along with the Yukon Chamber of Mines, is putting on a very high-profile luncheon uh, this September 15th, Friday, uh, in Toronto, Ontario, uh, at the St. Andrews Club and Conference Centre. Now, this event will include a lot of high-profile politicians and executives from Yukon companies. Uh, that includes the Honorable Sandy Silver, Premier of the Yukon, and the Honorable Ranj Pillay, Minister of Energy, Mines, and Resources, and also a regular guest on our program. Uh, CEOs at the event will include Paul West Sells from Western Copper and Gold, who was on our show last week, John McConnell from Victoria Gold, who is breaking ground at their Dublin Gulch project as we speak, Clint Noman from Alexco Resources, Janet Lee Sheriff from Golden Predator Mining Corp, Brent Bergeron, who is Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability with Gold Corp, Sean Ryan, Chief Technical Advisor from White Gold Corp, and last but certainly not least, Kelvin Dushnitsky, the President and CEO of Barrick Gold Corporation. Sorry, I think he's just the President, but nevertheless, nevertheless, a great, great lineup uh please do hop by yukonminingalliance.ca you can rsvp uh there's a nice little flyer they have up on the site there uh that's coming up pretty quick this friday so uh get on that as soon as you can it'll be a great event uh a chance to sit down and talk about that recent uh big infrastructure announcement in terms of uh federal funding that came out last week uh we had a big talk from uh paul Westells, obviously who's the uh, chair of the yma uh, last week so if you want to check that out hop on back an episode uh, and you can get all the details about the recent uh infrastructure announcement in the Yukon. But without further delay, we are being joined this week by Joe Mazumdar from Exploration Insights. Uh, Joe and Brent Cook, uh, who both jointly run Exploration Insights, are regular guests of this show and, and some of our favorite because they always uh, they always have great insights technically uh, and investment-wise on in terms of what's going on in the business right now, what they're looking at in terms of metals, um, and sort of enlightening us on some things investors should look out for and be careful of as they sort of wade into these uh, these mining days, these so headier days that we're seeing now. Uh, but Joe's going to sit down. This is another uh, regular installment of our At The Coffee Shop. So do per- forgive the background noise. There is a little buzz there. Uh, but Joe and I are going to talk about uh, mines. We're talking about underground mines. We're talking about a little bit about metallurgy. And we're also talking about, obviously, uh, investment opportunities, what Joe and Brent are looking at in terms uh, of this upcoming potential cycle. So uh, without uh, any more delay, as noted, uh, we will go right to this interview and it will take up the bulk of the program. Uh, so please uh, get comfortable, sit tight because joe and i are going to dig into uh, some of the major issues and stories out there in the industry right now uh so once again thank you for listening to the northern miner podcast do consider subscribing to the paper hop on over to northernminer.com uh but yes this has been matthew keeble and i will talk to you next week Today we have Joe Mazumdar with Exploration Insights. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. 
And this is sort of our regular in the coffee shop episode. Uh, there's actually lots to talk about today. Uh, it's been a while since you've been on. There's been a material movement in metal prices. We saw gold break $1,300. Obviously, copper's above three. Uh, so before we get into some detailed stuff, I just wanted to get maybe a little bit of an overview on how you're feeling about metals uh, and equity right now. Well, we bought a summer basket back in uh, you know June, July, with the idea that you know the market was in the doldrums, and then hopefully it'll come back. <laughs> and then pick up right before the uh, gold shows in Colorado, which are next week. Around the corner. What we found when we uh, re-looked at our basket in August was that the betas, the sensitivity of the stock during the summer, actually went down considerably. So there was not much interest around that period to gold movements. And so not only do we need the gold to move, but we needed the uh, the investors to be interested in the stocks to again get, like, to get actual volume to, to get a, the volume and so so we've had some rebound lately and we've done some uh, you know well in some stocks but others you can still see people looking at news in terms and it's not just leverage yeah. uh, we've owned some stocks that had some bad news that were really negative and other stocks that had good news on the quarters and that's the chance we took that actually went up quite a bit. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's a bit of a portfolio effect because we did buy a basket. Yeah. But what I'm finding right now is that we really need the leverage and the interest to come up in these individual stocks for them to take advantage of the gold price going up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And full disclosure, Joe and I had a bit of a pre-show meeting, a pre-production meeting, we're calling them these days. And we, uh, we came up with a few topics we thought were interesting recently in this week uh, that we were going to talk about. Uh, and one of the ones, this is actually Joe's idea, was to talk a little bit about, uh, what would you like to call it, Joe, difficulties in ramping up or, or difficulties with the mine plan. We've seen instances recently of, of a few juniors and developers uh, having issues with their mine ramp ups. We talked about Red Eagle and the San Ramon project in Colombia. We talked about TMAC and the Hope Bay project up north in Canada. Um, so let's kick it off. Uh, okay, well, uh, we just take a back step right yeah. now in terms of uh, we're, we're talking about junior companies, yeah. single asset companies, and so any impact on their only single asset is going to have a huge impact on their share price and valuation. So we all got to understand that. But the errors and the mistakes made are not the exclusively owned by junior companies. Majors make the same kind of mix-ups and screw-ups, but they've got a diversified portfolio that they can basically diversify their mistakes out so you see them less. Yes, and we've seen that with Goldcorp and Pochner and the Eleanor problems they've had, which have sort of been brushed under the rug, so to say, due to diversification. And and also, like, um, I worked on a project with with a major where we got the hardness wrong, and so in the development, the, the crusher was completely a misdesigned. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, if that's a word. Yeah. So, so right then we'd spent money on it six months before, and then we had to spend more money on it. Yeah. If that was a single asset company, they would have felt it a lot more than they did. And you couldn't put it in your quarterly results. You'd probably have to release the news within 24 hours. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so that's the first caveat yeah. in terms of oh, it's only a junior problem. It's not only a junior yeah. problem. Yeah. But when it's a junior asset that has the issue we're magnifying it 20 30 times versus somebody else so in terms of red eagle i mean they've done really well in terms of permitting financing and developing the project uh, in colombia in some place uh, that nobody was really sure that they could have permitted it could develop and could raise money which they've done all of that yeah 
The issue was that in the feasibility study, that work in terms of how to mine it was done by a lot of geotech uh, studies that were done at the surface, and there was no bulk tonnage sample. And that's not exclusive to Red Eagle. I note that Roxgold as well didn't have a bulk tonnage sample, but they went underground, developed, and they've done well. Ground conditions are fine. Yeah, Yeah. but that's the risk you take. Yes. So their issue from, and, and, and kudos to the management team for sitting down with me to discuss it, was one of the issues was the ground conditions and actually the, uh, the decline to access the ore body that going through saprolite. What they had budgeted and what it actually was drained a lot of their financing, yes. their funding. So then when they actually got underground, they needed to ramp up a little bit quicker. But the problematically, that's when they said the ground conditions weren't as good. And if you look at the geotech that Golder had done, the ground conditions in the hanging one footwall, if it was the solid non-saprolite granodiorite, were actually good to very good. So if that's your hanging one footwall, that's fine. Unfortunately, the shear zone is very poor. And what they were finding was the way the gold weaved around within the shear zone, they were finding that the hanging wall footwall was the shear zone. Okay. So in terms of mining that with the method that they had op- with to leave the back the, the, the area open and so delay the backfill okay. did not work. You couldn't leave that open. And that's why the pace fill helps the, the plant. Pace fill solidifies, solidifies it. it. And then it also stops the spalling from the walls, yeah. and that's the dilution. But the other problem is that the ground is undulating. Mm-hmm. And then when you muck it out, you don't get all the gold. Oh. And so they were in a position where not only were they diluting the head grade, they're also not getting all the gold. And so there was no point in mining it and sending something that the plant just to feed the plant. And so, they made yeah. the smart decision of just shutting it down, yeah. getting the money, do a pace built, uh, fill back flint, and just do it again. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, like you said, that is probably the prudent decision is to step back, raise the money, and, you get know, it you fixed. You need 50 odd mining faces to get the kind of throughput they were envisaging. Yeah. And they weren't getting that with the kind of development and the kind of uh, ground conditions they were getting. Well, it's an interesting one because originally that was envisioned as open pit, if I recall correctly. And one of the reasons that they ended up going underground, uh, if I recall my discussions with management, was because of the permitting. And they figured it would be easier to get the operation permitted with an underground operation. So interesting trade-off there in the well, long I would, run. I would think anything like open pit in, in Columbia period is not not, not a very uh, good idea in yeah. a lot of areas in terms of the footprint. Yeah. Uh, but also, I would think that that would, might be a big strip ratio for them. Yes, it was. I think it was up 5.7 maybe. Yeah. If I, so, just off the top of my head. So yeah. people can correct me online. They, they typically will. But uh, So moving on, and I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on Red Eagle as they install the new plant, backfill plant, and get things rolling again. Um, but uh, we also wanted to talk a little bit about TMAC and Hope Bay because uh, there's been... Uh, <laughs> There's been some discussion on on their Python plant um, and sort of what's going on there. They've had recovery issues. So this is more of a circuit issue, whereas we were t- with Reddy, we were exactly. talking about a ground issue. Yeah, so we're um, going from a mining risk. Yeah. Um, so, if, so you're going from a mining risk to a processing risk. And when you're dealing with a remote project, you want to do as much de-risking as possible before you go in with the, your chosen method. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the plant that they use from people I've discussed with has never been scaled to that level. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So 
you know, it's worked at, at, at a smaller scale. Mm. And, and back in a, a big company I used to work with, it's a gold company, the way you, we used to look at risk, especially on metallurgy, was the lowest risk was something we do. Mm. A, a moderate risk is something somebody else does. Yeah. And the lowest risk was something nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> so they were going into a remote project with, a, with an underlying risk that here's a plant that nobody has scaled up to this level. Okay. Okay. And they were looking for recoveries in the low 90s, mm -hmm. and I believe they were getting in the mid-60s. Mid-60s, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is huge. And then they exacerbated the, the issue because they didn't want to send high grade there. Yeah. So they were purposely mining low grade and stockpiling high grade, mm -hmm. and they were sending that to the plant. Which just destroyed their results entirely yeah, yeah. yeah. And we haven't seen the sort of dip in share price of it I, I get the impression TMAC is held in stronger hands yes. perhaps than some of the other examples we're talking about but it's interesting to see um, and they actually had scheduled the installation of a second one of these well they always had planned yeah. that was part of the risk mitigation was to have another one yeah uh, and that was always coming. It wasn't like they brought it in just specifically because they were having issues. That was always, they were always had two coming in terms of the uh, development. But the way Newmont had it in terms of their recoveries and what they did was more conventional. Okay, okay. Then okay. This is back when, when was this, I forget when TMAC picked this up. When was it? Four or five years ago, maybe. Yeah, uh, around I'm there. thinking like that. Were you with Newmont when they had Hope? Well, I, I was involved in the corporate development team that actually bought it. Oh, okay, okay. So you're very familiar with. Well, them. it's a little bit of an albatross around my neck. <laughs> so how, uh, when you say conventional, what would a conventional method? Of oh, just some, you know, like like the normal milling method. Yeah. You use a crusher ball mill yeah. to that kind of scale that's been tested at a lot of mines that yeah. can handle that kind of throughput. So you're familiar with how this Python is a bit different? Not really. Yeah, no, I'd have to look I've, at it. I've, I've looked at it, you know, in terms of gone on their website and also looked at the uh, technical details in terms of their technical report, what yeah. they published. But what I noticed is that, you know, they tested it, the Python, on a few ore bodies, but not all of them. Okay. They tested it on the near-term ones that they're mining right now, but at a smaller scale. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and they continue to hit really promising-looking drill intercepts up there too. I noticed some exploration results that. Were yeah, the, the mining hasn't been the issue, and uh, what they're mining is not the issue. It's the met, but the met can kill a project. Oh, very much so. Yeah, and interestingly, uh, when we were discussing this, I will, just as an aside, we will we will be keeping our eyes on TMAC and Hope Bay and crossing our fingers that they get that all sorted out on the circuit side. Uh, but you had mentioned something a little bit, I guess, in the past was was Nevson and the Bisha operation. You'd looked at that, and they'd had similar i guess it was with their zinc circuit that they were well yeah I mean, they, they put the zinc circuit into play on budget on time in eritrea which was huge mm. like when not unlike red eagle getting their capital getting their project up and running up you know at, and then declaring commercial yeah both of them declared commercial and yeah. that was really That's the 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 core of my um uh, article with the mining journal and what we published in our letter was that you can get to commercial and then sometimes you backtrack yeah, yeah. Uh, and you find out oh my god i can't maintain this throughput or hey the head grade's not right with the mining or jesus i'm not getting uh design recoveries yeah, uh, yeah. but you just declare commercial so what does commercial actually mean yeah. commercial you know technically means 60 to 70 percent of the design throughput over a certain period of time which could be anywhere from one to three months there's no actual or you could be like Pretium and it could be in your debt covenant. Well, it's got to be in your yeah. debt covenant yeah. because what you want to do is basically get to the point where you meet covenants. Meet covenant, yeah. 
That's the real big deal. Yeah. You yeah. know, you want to meet Covenant. So whatever you say is commercial, that's what it is. Well, I was surprised. Some people were surprised Bruce Jack, they declared commercial production as quickly as they did at Bruce Jack. But it was tr a Covenant trigger. Honestly. Absolutely. And then the whole idea is to get that certain amount of the throughput. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, that's, that's all it is. It's not saying, hey, I, I got that throughput at Design Recoveries getting a reconciled head grade. That's, no, no, that's, no, that's no. not it. It's just nameplate. It's, yeah. not na it's yeah. just nameplate capacity. Yeah. Yeah. It's what's written in the debt covenants. And did you have a chance to take a look at Predium's sort of first quarter results there at all? Or? No, 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 I, I yeah. don't delve into that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'd be hesitant to make a comment as well. It's a bit early, uh, yeah. but we will be watching that with our eyes peeled to see how that sort of works out and how that deposit reconciles. Well, I mean, right? the thing for us in looking at capital, I mean, they had reduced the capital, then they came back a little, uh, you know, and then their COO was left, so and then they raised the capital again. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of weird. But I mean, in terms of some of them developing, the power line was a huge de-risking event for the way they got that in, because yeah. it was not easy to get that power line in, which was instrumental in getting the plant up and running as well. Well, the interesting one is, while we're on the subject of sort of difficult ramp-ups, I don't know if you looked at Rainy River and the New Gold situation. Uh, interestingly, this is almost another ground condition uh, scenario where they ran into a bunch of sort of basal tills and overburden they hadn't expected that was really sticky and was just gumming up all their equipment and everything. They've since apparently fixed it, but it was another huge capital overflow. Well, that you the see problem right when you deal with like a marginal deposit like Rainy River, there's not a lot of room for error on yeah. your capital. Yeah. yeah, You know, granted this new goal, they got a lot more money to spend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, But in terms of, hey, are you doing it on time and on budget? And that, that could really blow you out. And when you have a marginal deposit and you're not generating free cash flow, you're draining that from your other assets that are. And they're in an interesting position where, you know, they're not a single asset company, but those delays and cost overflows did fundamentally, because I think a lot of NAVs apply exactly. to Rainy River. Exactly, and, and the other issue is like, you know, you're supposed to be positively generating free cash flow at yeah. some point where you're actually still draining. Yeah, exactly, which is just, analysts don't like that. They don't, yeah. does, it doesn't no, nobody should. It doesn't reconcile <laughs> with their models. Yeah, if you're a shareholder, also don't like that. Um, but uh, an interesting one, I mean, we didn't really touch on Bisha. Um, I'm not too familiar oh. with, with what so, you... So what happened there was, you know, the, the way... The way a, a volcanogenic massive sulfide deposit is, it, it, it's complicated metallurgically. Just if it's all sulfide, it's complicated. It's zoned, copper, core, zinc on the outside, maybe precious metals on the top of the copper. Yeah. So just sulfide alone is complicated. But then you fold it, so you're, you're, you're mixing up the zonation there, and then you oxidize it deeply. And so you have an oxide layer and a transitional, yeah. to a super gene enriched layer and then you get a transitional into the sulfide and so what they were dealing with that okay I'm out of super gene now I'm going to sulfide and so when I go to sulfide it's more zinc rich and so I need a zinc plant here's the zinc here's plant, plant. Yeah. running it's good I made it great but now I'm feeding it this transitional material and I thought I had thought that I knew that the transitional material would be problematic, yeah. but I had not realized it would be this problematic. On your copper concentrate, you would get too much zinc. And it's a reporting. penalty, it's bad. That's bad. Well, nobody wants it. Yeah, nobody wants that. In the end, what you had to do was sell that concentrate to a zinc smelter that wouldn't pay you for the copper. 
so I wasn't making any money. No, that's very bad. So then you had to work out how do you deal with it. And so mining-wise, they found out how to deal with it, but processing-wise, they hadn't. So then it just became a cost. That's sort of a combo problem. Like we're talking about problems in the circuit and problems under the ground, but that's sort of... Well, it wasn't a mining method issue. It was just sort of finding it and then putting it in a stockpile. So the ore body wasn't behaving quite as well as they'd hoped. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. again, it was metallurgical domain that was driving how they were mining it. And they recently lost quite a bit of their reserve life at Bisha too, I saw. And and, and that was an issue about the next phase of stripping. Yeah. So the next phase of stripping was significant. Mm -hmm. It would require a big increase in the mining capacity. And, um, you know, their their availability of trucks was an issue with respect to maintenance, and that was a, a bigger risk than they wanted to take. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. And, I mean, we've talked about a lot of risk here, Joe, obviously, for investors or for anyone who's involved in these companies. I mean, is there sort of any, you know, major things you look at, like in an instance like Red Eagle or an instance like TMAC where maybe an investor who's looking at these deals can sort of be like, well, I might want to keep my eye on, on this disclosure or this disclosure. Or... Well, I guess the thing is that we can't like do all the de-risking by reading the technical report. Yeah. There's a lot more information that, that the company has than, than we have access to. Yeah. But I mean, if you look at, let's say, flags mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, I, I would look at who's doing the other types of due diligence. Yeah. If, if all the funding's coming from private equity, the level of due diligence there will not be as good as a bank. True. I'm not saying a, a, a bank won't be fallible, they will, but you've got a lot more behind you because they're looking for cash flow, they're looking for return. Yeah. So they need this thing to work. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, whereas the private equity firm could be in it for a stream, they could be in it for a royalty, they could be in it for also equity. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways they can make money their exit that you cannot yeah, exactly. because they're not in it just for the equity. Yeah. That's right. Uh, So if it's private equity, just knowing a level of due diligence is not going to be as good. Interesting. So so would there be, in your opinion, a difference between institutional money and retail money then in that regard? In terms of due diligence? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Yes. I mean, in terms of the institutional, the access they have to information Mm -hmm. and to management, retail does not have that. So the retail has to be much more um, uh, obliged to listen to analysts. Analysts, yeah. Or, or, who work for the institutions a lot of the time. Or who work for the institutions yeah. or, or newsletter writers. Yeah, exactly. You know, so is, you got to trust them. Yeah, yeah. Which is one reason you should head over to Exploration Insights and check out... That wasn't meant as a plug. It, well, yeah, but we'll, we'll use it. It's a nice segue. I mean, it, you're on the show, so the least we can do is uh, offer a little bit of a... A pitch here for Exploration Insights. Uh, Joe obviously works with Brent Cook, a very familiar name about the industry. Um, Exploration Insights, and you just launched a new website, Angie. Yes, yeah. we have. Yeah. <laughs> how, so, how's the web development side of things? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's like what we needed to do was this website was, you know, over a decade old. Yeah. And uh, it was in a language that uh, you could not add much value to it. It's <laughs> like putting new tires on an old car. Yeah. yeah. Which you. Basically, I drive that as well. But, yeah. but what we need to do is, is 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 not only move up, but get ahead of the curve. Yeah. And uh, that's what we did. But it hasn't 
come without its issues. Yeah, yeah. In terms of glitches and stuff like that, which fun. were always yeah. fun. Yeah. But we're dealing with it. But I think it's been the right move with respect to going forward yeah. in terms of um, access uh, uh, for for subscribers. So everyone, hop on over, check out the facelift at uh, explorationsites.com. <laughs> you can check out Joe and Brent's writing as well, uh, and get even more insight on some of these risks and some of these issues we've seen recently with mine development. But I, I can assure you that the facelift does not look like Kenny Rogers. It looks better than that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's professionally done. I love it. Yeah, it's, it looks really sharp. So, uh, but yeah, Joe, we had uh, another. Moving on with our sort of agenda here, we had another topic. I, this was sort of my idea because coming from obviously a major background, you worked with Newmont for years. Uh, what we've seen recently is, is is instances of majors spinning out some assets to junior companies who are looking to either start out as developers, uh, chasing cash flow, or maybe just you know see an asset and a value-add opportunity. Uh, some of these we've seen legal with Los Filos. A lot of this is Gold Corp, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, Los Filos. Uh, we've seen them spin out the uh, Chero Blanco asset to Bluestone in Guatemala. Um, and there's been a handful of these things. Uh, the Camino Rojo deal with Orla Mining, which is actually chairman by Chuck Janess, so a little, <laughs> little familiarity. But uh, as someone who has worked on the major side, I'm really interested. A lot of these companies, the junior companies, acquire these things for such and such an amount of money in shares or in, in cash. Uh, and then they put out a PEA or some document shortly thereafter that says the asset has a net present value that's 10 times as much as what they paid for it. And I'm not going to name any names here, but I've seen this a few times. So I'm wondering from a major point of view, uh, when you're looking at these tertiary assets and you're looking at spinning them out to juniors, and then you see the junior come out with a press release that says it's worth 10 times what you sold it for, what's the what's the thinking on the, on, on the side of the major companies that are spinning this or selling this stuff out? So from a major point of view, a major gold producer point of view, I'd, I'd say like when I worked in corporate development, we would never sell production. That was sort of like a mantra. Okay. And so it's, inter it's interesting to see that they are selling production. Yeah. But I think from a major perspective, there's a certain way they see an operation, mm -hmm. whether it's jurisdictionally or it's a standalone isolated thing that they don't see that much leverage to, that or that they need a certain amount of throughput. The mine life with that level of throughput is gone in two years, and then we're gonna be going into reclamation mode. Yeah. There's an interest to run it at half the capacity and look at it differently. Mm -hmm. We can get it off our balance sheet and give the liability to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of a, a major, if with the gold price the way it's been, you know, uh, looking at non-core assets has been more like a divestment strategy. Yeah. To say, okay, this is non-core. Let's get rid of it because we don't want to spend any more of our time on it. Because for a major, allocating assets to something that doesn't generate a lot of revenue is not really worth it. It's interesting because a lot of what, what they're doing is, like you mentioned, there's there's obviously a political risk involved for some of these deals. Uh, we were talking off off recording about the pr probability that Goldport may be at a mandate to get out of Guatemala. Yeah. And then that, that had something to do with the Chero Blanco thing. The same with Mexico, potentially. I mean, we're seeing a lot of this risk-averse activity from the producers now. Um, we've seen them move into the Yukon like crazy. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Canadian deals. Um, but uh, it's interesting to see. I mean, when you look at those opportunities, like a junior starting out with an older production asset, do you think those are good investment opportunities for people? Or do you think well, I mean, some have not done badly, and yeah. you've got to really key in on the management team that they know this asset and they know how to advance it, and they got a really good mind 
plan in terms of how they're going to do better yeah. than the major and how the major looked at it. Like, oh my God, they were mining it with 250% dilution because they had to meet the plant at 1,200 ton per day. But hey, yeah. I'm going to mine it uh, at, at much less dilution so I get a higher head rate and I'm going to let the, the plant only take 600 ton per day and I'm going to feed it with some other materials. So you could see that go, oh, well, that makes sense yeah. and and the and the major did not have that flexibility to do it mm -hmm. you know something like that if you could see and add that all up yes you can see that kind of upside but if a major leaves an asset and your goal in the end is for these guys to get bought out yeah. the probability of that probably pretty low to come back yeah they're not going to come back yeah, they're and, not going to come back yeah you, you very rarely see that i mean unless there's some sort of material discovery that nobody like i covered nobody saw it coming yeah so and it would like they usually have clawbacks on things that they had yeah. think that there's might be a potential for back-ins back-ins yeah. but you know really it's it's they really want to get rid of it so they don't have to spend any more time money on it so the valuation for them internally is next to zero it's more of a negative so incrementally it's a positive for them to pitch it and if you give them shares in your company, great. great. I just want to get it off my book. Yeah, exactly. It's an accounting, almost an accounting mechanism. And I don't need to pay a bunch of accountants to look at it every quarter. And, and it's been interesting because when we've spoken previously, you've been a little bit critical of the majors with how they act in the last cycle in terms of chasing ounces that maybe were marginal. Um, and I mean, there's, I, w I wouldn't say there's been evidence that they're doing this again. Oh, but, yes, there is. Okay, okay, I will. <laughs> I'll go that far then. I, I was trying to be gentle. But, but there's, there is what appears to be evidence that they might be retreading this. And I just wanted your opinion on, on you. You were, over the last year and a half, we've spoken numerous times, and this is a point you've always hammered home. They should stop doing this. Why do you think they can't help themselves with that? Why are well, they, it's the market. They yeah. react to the market. Yeah. And so as long as the market's telling them, hey, don't grow. Yeah. I don't care about growth. I just want free cash flow generations. Then you say, okay, you know what? 70% of our assets, I'm making these numbers up, you know, actually generate free cash flow at 1,100. That's our new reserve price, uh, you know, or 1,200, whatever. And then the rest of them don't. So I'm going to key my capital, everything of my resources, human resources on these assets. Everything else is, we'll handle it if and when we need to. Otherwise, those things are just sitting there. And then you turn it around and go, okay, gold price is going up. What do we have for growth? Well, next to nothing because we've cut exploration and that 30% of those assets that we have don't work at our current reserve price. So either we change the reserve price or we uh, start doing these joint ventures and earnings with yeah. grassroots explorers because what we're finding is that we don't want to go back into the exploration game. And what we see at Exploration Insights is that the majors are not only investing in a junior for the land package, they're investing in the junior for the, the know-how, the knowledge base, the data, because they don't have people right now that know as much as the, some of the junior managements in terms of the asset, in terms of the jurisdiction, in terms of how to permit how to work in these areas. Which is an age-old business model, actually. My, my great-uncle used to do that at tech, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. problematically, yeah. the way they've got, you know, good or bad safety and logistical issues and human resources issues, for them to spend money on a per ounce basis or a, you know, per hectare basis to explore is much higher for this major to come in than letting a junior do it. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, we just saw. And now the, they don't have the critical knowledge base as well. So not only do they spend more, they're not bringing anything to the table. Yeah, it's a bench strength issue for them a lot of the time. Right now, it's only money. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, interestingly, we did just see the Alamos Richmond Mines deal come through for Island Gold, which you're you're quite familiar with. Um, that one was interesting. I heard a little bit of a mixed review. Some people were a little bit unhappy with the premium uh, they got for Richmond. Um, it was an all-share deal, obviously, and we always talk about whether cash is involved. Uh, but maybe some thoughts on uh, on the Richmond Alamos deal that was just announced yesterday. Or, right. Yeah, yesterday. I mean, full disclosure, we own both. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. so from our perspective, we were happy that Richmond finally got that takeout bid. Yeah. Unhappy that it was Alamos that did it. Yeah. Granted, um, they. Uh, I mean, the premium again was over the previous close about 20, 22 percent. And, but the premium over the 20-day uh, volume-weighted average price was about 30, and so it wasn't uh, like out of line mm -hmm. with some of the other premiums we, we've seen. And Richmond has done well yeah. in terms of generating their PEA, permitting the expanded plant, drilling more, getting rid of their debt. Adding mine life. Adding mine life yeah. of their issue. I mean, one of the reasons potentially for the delay in them getting taken out versus some others that we had taken out, like. Claude or Lakeshore or New Market was I think that those Quebec assets that were draining their free cash flow I think they had to excise those which they concurrently which they, did which yeah. they did concurrently yeah. and I think Alamos might have wanted that to happen yeah. and the other thing was the de-risking event that the PEA and the mine plan had to be acceptable and I guess it was yeah. and importantly for us as we watch Richmond they finally generated free cash flow from the island gold mine in yeah. the second quarter, so all that development spending was some was coming back to them and giving them positive benefits. And so, in the end, there's not too many Canadian high-grade underground deposits out there that are operating that are actually generating free cash flow. Oh, and once again, Alamos did make in their materials a big deal about jurisdictional. Yes, yeah. and that's again. the other thing is I think personally that Alamos probably is a little bit worried about their exposure to Turkey Yeah. in terms of their development assets. And the timelines on and them. And the timelines on them and they yeah. might get delayed. And so here you're, you're not only increasing your exposure in terms of geopolitical diversification to more safe jurisdictions, but also you're changing your diversification towards more production. Yes. And more of that production is coming. I mean, all their production is coming from safe jurisdictions, mm -hmm. but now you got even more production as opposed to development projects being part of your net asset value. Well, and the, the interesting thing is I, I always ask you this, I know, but we have seen a bit of a change now as we've been talking about. I mean, where is your sweet, is there a sweet spot now for investment in terms of developers, explorers? I know you were into intermediate producers at some point, maybe a year and a half well, ago. Well, I mean, yes, and, yeah. and then we switched yeah. because we were getting taken out at a decent premium before and we usually sold as soon as the takeout was announced. Yeah. Now we find ourselves holding still both companies yeah. because the market reacted very negatively to yeah. it, yeah. which was not the market reaction to New Market, not the market no. reaction to Claude, yeah. not the market reaction even to Lakeshore. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we find ourselves in a bit of a quandary uh, in terms of that. Uh, you know, I think the, the better, you know, bang for buck investment in the higher risk uh, exploration sector rather than the development. I mean, it doesn't seem like investors give much value to a de-risking event anymore. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that as well. But I mean, you hit one smoke and drill hole and they'll... Well, even yeah. somebody with a development project technically 
like a Sabina. They seem to add more market cap with a really good hole from, uh, from uh, you know, Lama Deeks yeah. or uh, yeah. Umwelts or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Those People. seem to do more for them than saying, hey, you know, I just well, de-risk we, the asset a bit more with some more metallurgical test work or something yeah, like that. Yeah, or even permits. Yeah. I mean, which were the big, big well, overhang. Well, they did get a big boon yeah. when the, the, the Nunavut Investment yeah. Review Board gave them the thumbs up. Yeah. But now going forward, does any more of that de-risking add much as much value as a good hole? No. I, I think right now I don't think no, so. No, I, I, I'd agree with you. And I mean, the interesting thing is we have seen uh, discovery holes generate insane, not even holes, in the case of something like Novo Resources, which I know Brent had just gone down to visit, they, they found a nugget while they were essentially digging around. In the, well, they did a bulk tummy yeah. sample from one of the trenches, and, yeah. the, the, you know, it, it came out really well, obviously, and they were getting gold in the finer fraction, which was yeah. important. But again, no drill holes. No drill holes. Yeah. No drilling, huge land package. But what, you know, what people are obviously saying is that, hey, if this is another WITS, it's actually in Western Australia, and these guys have a lot of the land package tied up, and... And now Kirkland Lake owns whatever and ever amount for yes. 54 million or whatever yes. now, which yeah. as you say is like the dog peeing on the tree basically. Um, but I uh, know it's interesting to me just to, I'll have to ask Brent because I know he went down there. Next time I see him, I'll ask what he thought about Novo. But uh, it's it's that and, you know, things like the GT Cold Tataga intercepts that they've been releasing recently in the Golden Triangle. I mean, it's interesting to me how net drill holes are back in vogue again after, Absolutely. after a long and, time. And I, and I think a lot of that's being led by retail. Yeah. Because retail, that's what they like. Yeah. Uh, they like the drill holes. They like the first part of the curve and not the second part of the investment curve, yeah. Yeah. where you're going from, you know, changing management teams, going to development and going into production. That's not what's in vogue right now. Yeah. yeah. Now what's in vogue is hey, you know, you've got a great soil anomaly. Let's drill under it. Yeah. And and and. And Boanga, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so a company that drills under a great soil anomaly and generate some fantastic intersections can be worth four times as much as a company with an actual reserve yes. grade yeah. in the same jurisdiction uh <laughs> you know one's trading at 30 to 40 million and another one's trading at 160 million you, you're not the first person to make that observation to me some of them somewhat naming bit, names. somewhat bitterly making that observation yeah, yeah, to not me, naming but, names uh, but yeah. uh, you know it's not like we're interested in either all i'm yeah. saying is that that's a good example how the valuations are a bit asymmetric. Ace right now, yeah, for sure, for sure. When somebody has de-risked something, spent money on it, that's getting less money than something that has a lot of upside potential. Well, it's interesting to me because I feel like a lot of, in some instances, they're, they're waiting too long for a takeout. And then the market starts to wonder if these individuals or company intends to develop with themselves at all. At some point, you need to move, right? And, one and but the market's the, not really interested in yeah. development because then it's a funding thing. Then yeah. it's like, oh, are they going to have an issue ramping yeah. up? Oh, yeah. did they do? Uh, did they do a bulk tonnage sample? Yeah. Oh, uh, what was the met again? And so Which returns to our original yeah. discussion. Yeah. yeah. So, so they would rather the lottery ticket yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, that's great, Joe. Pretty much came in full circle there. I know we're running low on time. It's always great to have you on the podcast. Uh, so thanks again. This has been Joe Mazumder with Exploration Insights. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. And we'll talk to you next time. Cheers.